Well, we just wrapped up a sermon series from the book of Habakkuk last week with the subtitle of Trusting God in Troubling Times. And there's some similarities about the uh, Advent series subtitle as well. You know, I love Habakkuk. I, I had a, a lot of people said they also appreciated the sermon series. I learned a lot through it. We did it for five weeks, and it was I, I really um, enjoyed digging into the, a book that normally is overlooked there. Habakkuk was a prophet that lived um, right before the Babylonian captivity in about 597 B.C., and he was questioning God, asking God questions, you know, and he got his questions answered by God in the first two chapters, and then the last two weeks we were talking about the song that he sang in response to God's answers, a song of praise, a song to God. And throughout that song, Habakkuk had remembered the past, remembered the Exodus, the super significant time in Israel's history when God brought him out of slavery and established them as his people and then led him through the wilderness and into the promised land where he was going to be their God in their place and they were going to be his people. And God reminded Habakkuk how he had dealt with the kings and the nations for his purposes. And then in a sense, God used that original exodus as an illustration for what was about to take place in Habakkuk's day, that there would be a new exodus. But instead of going out of captivity, God's people were going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And then 70 years later, God was going to bring them out of captivity again into the promised land again after 70 years. And all along, the people of God, the real people of God who believed in the Lord's covenant promises, they held on to that hope, that hope that one day God was going to reestablish his people in his place under his rule again. And in a way, God began to fulfill that promise 70 years later after the Babylonian captivity. That, uh, that captivity began to be reversed when uh, the king uh, of Persia named Cyrus it says in Ezra chapter 1 that the Lord stirred up his spirit of the king and he issued a decree allowing the Jewish people to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And the book of Ezra is all about the people rediscovering, the leaders rediscovering God's word and then teaching that to the people. And the book of Nehemiah is all about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that had crumbled over those 70 years, leaving them vulnerable to attack. And so Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls. But things were never the same again. So they rebuilt their homes, and then they ended up rebuilding the temple again. But things were never quite the same. And in fact, the dedication of the temple in Ezra chapter 3, it says that the young people, when they dedicated the temple, they were so excited, they shouted for joy about this new beginning. But it says in Ezra chapter 3 that the older people, the people that had remembered what things were like, they cried not tears of joy, but tears of sadness. And it says, literally, like, you couldn't tell the screams of joy from the screams of sadness at the same time. The older people were, and it wasn't that the older people were sad that the temple was rebuilt. No, what they were sad about was, like, they remembered what things were like in the past. And they remembered, like, this new temple, it's not the same. You know, it wasn't the same. Yes, we rebuilt it, but there was a, a greater fulfillment of the promise that was coming. Things weren't as good. There was still constant opposition from the outside, and they still lacked an internal cohesion of the nation on the inside. And so things didn't automatically go back to normal after the exile. 
you know why the big thing is, is this. If you remember from the book of Ezekiel, the presence of the Lord, the presence of God, which dwelt in the temple, it had actually left. He had a vision of the, the, them in Ezekiel of the temple, of the presence of God leaving the temple. Well, even though the temple had been rebuilt, the presence of God was no longer there the way it was before. And so things were not the same. You know, in the Garden of Eden, that was God dwelling with his people, right? Until the fall, until sin happened. And that was the promise of, of the promised land when they were going through the wilderness to the promised land. But that ended up failing as well. And then you have, okay, the first temple got destroyed and, you know, Habakkuk had said, like, you know, this is, we're going to get overrun by the Babylonians. And then even after the second temple was rebuilt, there was still that remnant of God's people who said, you know, they longed for the fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, there was a sense of longingness that things are not the way they ought to be. Things are not the way they are going to be. And that's where Jesus comes in. See, the arrival of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the actual fulfillment of the hopes for God's people for a Messiah. That is what Jesus, the Messiah, is all about. So if you're just used to reading the New Testament or starting the book of Matthew, it's very helpful to know the backstory, right? It's very helpful to know the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 and the story of Habakkuk and, and the story of Jeremiah when they were just crying out to God, how long, how long, O Lord, when are you going to restore your people? And then even after the second temple was rebuilt, it's like, it's still not right, you know? Things are still not right. And so God's people who just long for the presence of God, that was what they were looking forward to. That was what the arrival of Jesus Christ is all about. He is the fulfillment of the hopes for God's people for a Messiah. And additionally, for us today, we can have hope because of Jesus' first arrival. The arrival of Jesus is the beginning of our hope that we know that will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus comes back again. So he, Jesus came once. He's coming again. And so our hopes were initially fulfilled at his first arrival, and then it's going to be completely fulfilled when he comes again when he makes all things new, when he sets all things in order, when the, the presence of sin is going to be completely abolished and God is going to establish his kingdom forever with Jesus on the throne. That's why we talk about this Advent season. There's that, that like I said, that, that past and the present and the future with, when we talk about the Advent season. We call this Advent. Advent literally means coming or arrival. And so this, this time leading up to Christmas are your kids doing this? Are you guys counting down on an Advent calendar yet? I know that our kids have been asking Alexa how many days till Christmas. And so far they said, when does our Advent calendar start? And we said, not till Wednesday, you know. That's the first, isn't it? It's sometime this week. But they wanted one that was like, a, do we have a pre-Advent calendar? You know, can we start counting already? We've already had Thanksgiving. Christmas music is on, okay? We're going to get the Christmas decorations up soon, maybe today. So um, when do we start counting down? That's what Advent's all about. It's about anticipation. It's about the coming. It's about looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ is born. But again, it's not, Advent is not just an extension of the Christmas season. Even though it is that, it's not just about that. It's not just the time to get your Christmas shopping list together, right? It's more than that. It's a season that links the past and the present and the future. It's an opportunity for us to maybe put ourselves in the shoes of those people from long ago who looked forward to that day of his arrival. 
we, in a lot of ways, as we look forward to the second coming of Christ, we have a lot of similarities to the people in Habakkuk's day. Because they didn't know when Jesus, the Messiah, I should say the Messiah, they didn't know what form he was going to take or they didn't know what it was going to look like when the Messiah arrived. That's why it was so surprising, which we'll get into in future sermons. But they didn't know the timing at all. So Advent for us today, it's a season of looking back and then it's also a season, a time to celebrate the hope that we have because of Jesus' coming. And then it's a, a chance for us to look ahead kind of with the same eager expectations that one day Jesus is coming back again. And so Advent is not just this boring waiting time. It's an active, assured, and hopeful waiting time. Again, it's not just a time to like say, okay, Advent countdown calendars are not like the clock ticking until you get, gotta get your Christmas presents and Christmas cards out, right? That's not what, it's not a countdown clock. It, it's a time for us to, uh, to look ahead. And to, instead of getting busier as the countdown gets closer, instead, let's take some time to just relax for a second, to put aside the stress of the holiday season, to not overwhelm our schedule with things, schedules with things that we have to do, but instead, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that we can set aside times of, of quiet and peace and to prepare our hearts for and to prepare our, our minds and our hearts and our spirits for really receiving the gift that we receive on Christmas Day, that we did receive on Christmas Day. And to really contemplate that story of God's love that he showed to us when he sent his son, when he gave his son for us. We can really think about Christmases. He would be, shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. A season of expectation and preparation. And so wherever you're at on your, your level of anxiety or uncertainty, wherever you're at, you know, in your, your spiritual walk, this, let this be a chance where we can, um, we can reflect on that gift that we've been given. So that's going to be our theme for the next four weeks as we explore the attributes of Christ revealed in his birth. We're going to talk about the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll celebrate the arrival of Jesus the Christ. And so today we're going to be talking about rediscovering the hope of Christmas when we're surrounded by uncertainty. So what is hope? Well, Webster's definition defines hope as... Uh, Two things, a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. Now, there are two words in there, two key words that kind of undermine the biblical definition of hope. The first, it says it's a feeling. So if I base hope on a feeling, then my hope could be disappointed. For example, let's say a girl might say, I hope my boyfriend gives me a diamond ring for Christmas. Does that feeling bring about that hope? Or if a Steeler fan says, I hope we have a, a good year this year. I hope we make the playoffs. Does that feeling guarantee a win? No, not necessarily, right? Or, secondly, it says in the definition, a desire for a certain thing to happen. And again, there's a shallowness to that word feeling. There's a shallowness to that word desire. So you could say, I hope it doesn't snow today. Or I hope I get a promotion at work. Or I hope I can recover from this sickness and get back on my feet. And there are desires that we have, sometimes really good desires, 
But it's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about hope today. Feelings and desires are part of the world's definition of hope. And there's a shallowness to that that can leave us feeling um, empty. It can leave us feeling unhappy if we just hope for hope's sake or hope in hope, right? I've heard that phrase before as well. Well, there's a letdown there if you're just hoping about hope. There's an emptiness there. Because even if you're hoping in another person or things that will get better, if you put your hopes in another person, they're going to let you down. Because every person is sinful. Every person will disappoint you in some way. And that's, that's the truth. So the, when the Bible talks about hope, there's a, a different biblical definition that I want to bring about. And it's more, like I said, a state of anticipation. In the Old Testament Hebrew, there's two different words for the word hope. One is, or yahal, and that means to wait. Just like I'm waiting for the bus. That means to wait. But there's a, a second word that it's used in the Hebrew Bible. It's called kavah. That means to wait. And kavam comes from the word kav, which is cord or like a rope. So when you pull a rope or a kav tight, it produces tension. And when there's a release of that, that's kavah. The feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen that will be, that will be released. It's a, it's a waitful, hopeful expectation. During the Old Testament time, when the nation of Israel was, was seeking in self-destruction, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said this, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. And so he was putting that into words that Israel's only hope was from God, that while he waited, he was waiting in hopefulness on the Lord. So biblical hope is based on the Lord, which makes it different than just cheerful optimism. Optimism is choosing to see in any circumstance that which might work out for the best. But biblical hope is not based on circumstances. In fact, you can have biblical hope in the face of horrible circumstances. But you can choose to be hopeful in God anyway. This holiday season, I want to move beyond that circumstantial optimism in order to focus on the person who personified hope, Jesus Christ. More specifically, we're going to look at the through the lens of two people who were eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And their names were Simeon and Anna. And they show us the realization of hope and remind us of the need to keep hope in the second advent of our Savior. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, I want to read Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. I said um, Simeon and Anna, because Anna's in chapter 36, I mean, verse 36 to 38. But really, we're going to be focused on Simeon in particular. So I'm going to read the scripture here. Hear the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, 
he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had said was about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. This is God's word. Praise be to God. So there are three main things that I want us to learn from this passage today. First of all, that hope can be a marvelous thing as it motivates us in the right direction. And again, I'm talking about the biblical definition of anxious anticipation and how Jesus fulfills that. You see, Joseph and Mary were Jesus' earthly parents, and they were dutifully obeying the word of the Lord whenever they went up to the temple here. So Jesus, like any good Jewish boy in any Jewish family, he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses. And then 33 days later, or 40 days in total, they go to the temple in Jerusalem in order to present Jesus according to the law of Moses. Now, it says here in verse 33 that it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Again, remember the story of the Exodus? This is a reminder of how God spared the firstborn son in the Exodus. And so God said the firstborn was going to be set apart, holy to the Lord. That's what holy means, is set apart. And so this is a reminder of God's salvation in the past and how God, it's a way to, what you do is they presented him to the Lord in the temple. So he was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Galilee, but before he moved to, to Nazareth, they stayed and they went to the temple um, which is about 30 miles from where he was born in order to be presented to the temple there. And there were two offerings that were they brought to the temple. That showed, uh, first of all, it says there were two offerings, a burnt offering and a sin offering. And they were supposed to bring a lamb, but the law of Moses made provision for poor people, and they could just bring two, two birds. And so you, we know that Joseph and Mary did not have a lot of money because they couldn't offer the offering that was supposed to be offering, they had to offer the, the two birds that they brought to them. So they didn't have a lot, but they were obedient to the Lord. They were, they were obedient with what they had. And after talking with Simeon and Anna, they marveled at what was said about their child that was born. It says in verse 33 that they were amazed. So they were obeying the law of Moses, which is good, but when Jesus came onto the scene, he made it clear that the law of Moses wasn't the final thing. Instead, that the law of Moses only pointed to the Messiah, to Jesus as the Messiah. In John 5.45, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So according to Jesus, the law of Moses pointed forward to him. And if you set your hope only on religious obedience, you're going to be let down, he's saying. So he was the fulfillment of hope. It wasn't the law of Moses. 
if you just try to follow religious observation, even the, the word, which is what the Pharisees and other observant Jews tried to do, he said that's only going to lead to your condemnation. So that's not where we place our hope. Our hope is not on what we do. It's not on outward obedience. It's on Jesus Christ. And that he's saying that. So Jesus is the beginning of our hope. So with his first arrival, there was joyfulness and there was hopefulness that even though things aren't perfect, we are living in the last days when we are looking forward to when Jesus will come and make everything put together right. So the second thing to learn about this passage is how we can wait with eager anticipation as we look forward to the second coming of Christ. And we look at Simeon as a really good example here, and Anna as well. What was she doing in the temple as well? So if we look at Simeon, we, can, we see, first of all, that Simeon was absolutely sure that the Lord was coming. It says in verse 26 there that he was waiting because it had been revealed to him that he would not see death until the Lord came. And there were many details concerning the incarnation that wasn't clear to him, but he was definitely clear, he was definitely positive that he would see this arrival. And whatever form it was going to take, he would see this arrival. And as you and I, as we live today, knowing that Jesus came once, he's going to come again, we don't know when, but we can be certain that he will come again. And so let us believe the word of the Lord and let us rejoice because we know that our confidence in his second coming is sure and it's certain. Secondly, Simeon accept, expected the Lord to come at any time before he saw death. So imagine every day he lived, he thought this could be the day. And as every day we live, we think, well, this could be the day. My pastor growing up would always say, you know, well, you know, if I don't, if Jesus doesn't come back and if I, if I don't die, you know, like he'd be like, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Might as well go get some dinner, you know. He was always reminding us, let's just do the next thing. Let's keep walking in obedience because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we as Christians talk about the imminent return of Christ. That means that it could happen any day, any time, any moment, Christ could come again. And that's what Simeon, how he was living his life. Well, Jesus, you know, the Messiah is not here. He didn't say Jesus. <laughs> he said, the Messiah isn't here. I'm just going to go to the temple. I'm going to worship today and look with eager anticipation. And in the meantime, Simeon lived a life that was righteous. He was a just man. We see this in verse 25 here. It says this, that he lived a life that was honest and upright in the eyes of man. He was sincere. He was above reproach. You know, as Christians, we ought to be known as people who are fair and just as well. Knowing that we aren't perfect, we're never going to be perfect, but hopefully we can walk in obedience to the Lord and our lives can reflect Jesus Christ. Simeon was a devout man. Verse 25 tells us, that he was holy and set apart in the sight of God. God's command to us is that we should be holy and, is, and walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit as well. And there is no greater incentive to holy living than to believe and live in light of the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming again. Simeon was controlled by the Holy Spirit too. He walked in step with the Spirit, which is what we are commanded to be as well. It says in verse 25, how many times? Three times here. Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, he had been, had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, it says that he came in the Spirit into the temple. The Spirit-controlled life is a life lived with the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, and led by the Holy Spirit. 
And you cannot receive the Holy Spirit unless you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ's work of salvation for you. And once you do that and you believe in Jesus, then you receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He applies Christ's work to our lives, gives us new life, helps us understand spiritual things, and then helps us to live a life of obedience. Simeon knew what he was seeing when he saw Jesus. And he knew somehow that Jesus was the Christ. The Holy Spirit revealed that to him. In verse 32, it says that he, um, he marveled at, at this. And he said that Jesus was going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And secondly, for your glory to your people Israel. And so he knew that Jesus, some, he knew this, that Jesus was, people were going to be re reject him, but that the gospel was going to be preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. And notice also that the Holy Spirit always leads to and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Simeon was surrendered to the Lord too. He was sold out to the Lord, to God. It says in verse 29, it says, uh, there are three words here in verse 29. He, he first of all said, Lord, um, meaning overlord. He also says, servant, which means bondservant. And then he says, according to your word. In other words, like he is submissive to the word of God. Here's a picture of a surrendered life, a life which recognizes Jesus as Lord. And he's saying, I'm your servant. I'm placing myself under the authority of God's word, completely submissive to him. And finally, we see that Simeon, he welcomes Jesus when he arrives. And I love verse 28 here. What a beautiful picture in verse 28. It says that he, he took the baby in his arms and blessed God in saying this. He had been longing for this day, and he blesses God with this baby. I wonder if he was expecting, like, a full-grown adult, you know, somebody to come in and say, like, I am the Messiah, you know. somebody. A lot of people say the Messiah when he comes, he's going to announce that he is this person. Jews today will read back into Old Testament prophecy like Isaiah 9 and say, well, the words Messiah and son, which is true, sometimes the word son was referring to the nation of Israel. So either they were referring to a group of people but, or a person, but not a baby, right? That was pretty shocking. But he took the baby in his arms, he blessed God, and he celebrated the arrival of the Messiah. And like I said, what we learn from this passage is that our future hope is made confident by the arrival of the Messiah here. And you know, the same as Anna. We don't, I mean, look at what Anna did too. She was waiting as well. And it says in verse 38 that she gave thanks to God. She gave thanks to God. She told everybody she, and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So it wasn't just Simeon. It wasn't just Anna. There were other people waiting for the redemption of Israel. It says Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. People that were waiting for this day to come. Excited that, that it had finally arrived and they thanked the Lord and they began to speak of him. I mean, it was what a, a joyous day this was as they see that their hope is fulfilled. And, you know, not totally fulfilled. That's what we get to be a part of today as we continue to look forward to that day as God is expanding his kingdom, he's building his people, and we get to celebrate the future Christ by celebrating Jesus Christ coming the first time. That's what Christmas is all about. Let me read to you, you know, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about 
a living hope when we are reborn. And Paul calls it the hope of glory. The hope of glory. You see how even the New Testament writers, they picked up on this, this theme of Advent that we're talking about today is that it's the fulfillment of the hope of God's people with the arrival of Jesus Christ. If you remember from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, he even prophesied, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Or a more complete picture of that day was Zephaniah. Zephaniah also is very similar to Habakkuk, but I want to read to you his prophecy in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So this, again, is a picture of what God's doing. And you can see in the language there the completeness of what God will do. And I love how it says in verse 18, there will be no mourning. And verse 19, there will be no more oppression. The lame will be, be rescued. The exiles will be all gathered in. And verse 20, that we will be brought home and he will sing over his people with gladness. You know, the New Testament writers, they even saw this fulfillment in Christ's arrival of the Messiah. And for a future consummation, they saw that the kingdom of God was began, it was inaugurated with Jesus' first arrival, and they looked for the day when it would be finally consummated or completed when Jesus comes again. And we can have that confidence in the second coming because of Jesus' arrival. And we can see that it's fulfilled in Christ. You know, in conclusion, I want to point you to, um, it's kind of like, at first, the story of Luke chapter 24. It's kind of a, you don't say, how does this relate to Christmas? But in Luke 24, it's a story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, they're traveling from Jerusalem. Seven miles now is the town of Emmaus. This is after Jesus died after he rose again, but the two travelers, they didn't know that this person named Jesus rose again. All they know, knew is that he died, and so they're walking along the road, on down the road, traveling for about a half a day. They're about seven miles away, and as they're walking along, all of a sudden they're joined by an unknown traveler, unknown to them at the time, but we know now that it was the resurrected Jesus. And for some reason, he didn't reveal his identity to them. He just said, what are you all talking about? And he could see the sad look on their faces, and they said, if you remember the words, they said, oh, we had hoped that he was going to be the one. We had hoped that things were going to turn out differently. We had hoped that Jesus, this person named Jesus Nazareth, that 
He was going to be the one to save Israel. And, you know, isn't it kind of funny, right? With a wink and a nod, we can be like, oh, he was the one, right? Oh, he was the one. He did save you. Like, he didn't let them know that, right? That's why I think it's just the coolest story, right? Oh, uh, he would only have done this for us. And Jesus says, I did so much more for you. You, you were looking for the wrong thing. You didn't even get it, you know? That's why a lot of people overlook the first, the first birth of the Messiah. They were looking for the wrong thing. And they're like, oh, we had hoped that, you know, he wasn't going to die, you know? Who would, what kind of Messiah dies, you know, right? And Jesus, he reveals his identity then, right? And he says to them, like, I am he. He rose from the grave again. He is alive now. And then after they realized that this Jesus is the resurrected one, what happened? Their lives were changed. You know, it's when you realize, okay, my hope now is not in religious observation. My hope is not in a person. You know, my hope is not even who I think God is, but instead it's in who Jesus really is. Now I have real life. Now I have eternal life. Now I have life to the full because Jesus really did redeem Israel. He really did save his people from their sins. He saved his people. And that is where our hope lies. So my question to you is, do you understand that? Do you have real hope, solid hope, not just a feeling, not just a desire? Do you have the hope of Christ this Christmas? If you were to die today, would you know the hope of eternal life? Do you know where you would spend eternity? Because you can know this, and you can know it for sure because Jesus was born as a baby. He didn't just was born one day and, and died the next. He lived a perfect life, giving us an example of love and selfless living, but also perfectly keeping the law of God on our behalf. And then he died in our place for our sin and rose again. So now our hope is not in anything in this life, but our hope is in the resurrection life to come. This Christmas, I pray that we will rediscover the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the hope of Christ, not hoping in ourselves, not hoping in feelings or desires or hoping just in, for hope's sake, but instead putting our trust in you and our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.